Well, I'll give you a moment. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, if you take those out, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been venturing through these last weeks and find uh, chapter 11. If you uh, interact with Scripture by means of an electronic device, get those out, turn them on, scroll to Mark 11. If you need to know the Wi-Fi password, it is uh, all small case, Centralia Church. Got all these palm branches, I'm going to try not to slip and fall on them. I think I'll be okay. And while you're turning in your Bibles, you can get your core guide out uh, so you can take some notes. And, um, and on the inside, if you're not familiar with the core guide, there are some devotionals that uh, help keep us in the Word throughout the week. Um, most of them have something to do with what we talk about on Sunday mornings and um, maybe expand on, on a thought or um, help us move in, in a di- different kind of a direction, uh, all kind of surrounding uh, the message. So I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me um, to honor the authority of the word of the Lord as we read Mark chapter 11. <clears throat> as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went, found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with 12. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. That's probably enough for us to chew on for a little bit this morning. Palm Sunday. Just read about the triumphal entry. Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. Whenever I read the gospel accounts, it's one of uh, just a handful of stories that that make it into all four gospels. I always think about the various parades that I've gone or been privileged to attend in my life. There's one I think I've maybe mentioned this before here. We were newly married, visiting in 
my parents in Tampa, Florida, and we were driving around one evening. This was around Thanksgiving time near St. Petersburg, and there's throngs of people. I mean, thousands of people on the streets and sidewalks, and they're all moving in the same direction. It was very out of sorts. You don't see things like this very often. It was like people were trying to escape something. They're all going in the same direction. Block after block, people all moving down in the same direction, which just happened to be towards the waterfront. We were curious, so we parked the car and joined the crowd. We had no idea where we were going. In fact, my mom, we're, we're walking, we're, we're, we get to this intersection, and there's a police officer who's directing traffic at this point, and we're crossing the street, and my mom pauses and says, hey, can you tell us where we're going? <laughs> you know, we just, that's a comical moment. Uh, we ended up at the waterfront. It was just as, you know, there was, it was dark outside, and, and there was a parade, except it was a boat parade. All the boats were lit up and decorated for Christmas, and, I mean, I'm not talking like 16-foot fishing boats now. I'm talking about the, you know, the multi-million dollar yachts that are just totally decked out. And it was one of the neatest parades that, that we had a chance to witness. We lived in Spokane. Every year in May, the, there's a parade in Spokane called the Lilac Parade or the, the Torchlight Parade. And one of the neat features of that parade is there's usually about 45 to 50 different marching bands from around the area and around the state and even down uh, from Canada. And <clears throat> so it's pretty neat as the bands come by, you see all their uniforms and the colors and what song are they going to play. And, and so there's, there's a lot of cheering that's going on in this parade. And I think about we were living in Illinois and you know, for a long time, the, the White Sox and the Cubs were, you know, not so good at baseball. And one year, the White Sox happened to win the World Series while we were living in the area. And of course, when a sports team wins a championship, what happens? There's a parade. And they lined the streets of Chicago I mean, it was a massive crowd, millions of people in downtown Chicago. A friend of mine uh, worked in a law firm uh, right downtown, and, and his office uh, had a window that just so happened to look out over the parade route. And he said it was just a sea of humanity and chaos. And as those players in the various vehicles, you know, perched up on top and, and waving to everybody as they came through, the, the crowd just went nuts, cheering. Jesus is on this journey with his disciples. Yeah, they started in Galilee. Most of his ministry occurred up there. They'd make an occasional trip to Jerusalem to celebrate big festivals and so forth. But if you were to, to plot out on a map 
the, the movement over time of Jesus' ministry, it starts up in the north in Galilee, and uh, most of his ministry happens there, and, and over time, it, it, there's intentional steps that, that lead him towards Jerusalem, where in just a few days, he'll be crucified, uh, written off uh, <clears throat> as somebody who was against the religious system, but also against the empire, criminal. And the people have been expecting a Messiah for a long time. So as they arrive in this particular story that we just read, the there are hundreds of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And when people went to celebrate the Passover, a couple things were happening. One, they were remembering and rehearsing and telling each other, reminding each other of all of the great freedom stories of how God has helped them in the past. When we were in prison, God set us free remembering all of that. But they're also, they're also there to remind each other of the hope that was out there, that God said, I will come and I will do it again. I will send somebody. And they were expecting somebody to come out of the line of, of King David. I will send this Messiah person. And he will be one who will free you from your oppression and and he will um, bring God's righteous rule, and he will clean up the religious system that had kind of gone sideways. That's, that's what the people are expecting, and each year at Passover time, it's, it's a very intentional remembering back and looking forward. So when we gather around the, the Lord's table and celebrate communion, we do kind of the same thing. We remember back to Jesus' sacrifice for us, where we can have, he came to forgive us our sins, but we also, we also keep our eyes forward and remind each other that when we go through dark times and we, and we enter into the valley of the shadow of death, that we don't have anything to fear because out in the future, Jesus has promised, I will come back. So on this Palm Sunday, Jesus and his disciples make this journey the story right before the one that we read begins in Jericho. They're leaving Jericho. They're heading to Jerusalem. There's a man named Bartimaeus. He's blind. And as they are leaving, Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus. And I think the disciples, they were just in a hurry. We've got to get on to this this other stuff. It's got to be close to kingdom time. The Passover, you know, is, is happening, Jesus. We, we're on a little time schedule. And Jesus says, call him over. Jesus pauses. And he, he asks the blind guy, what do you want me to do for you? Hello? I'm blind. I've heard... <laughs> Maybe you could help me see. And Jesus says, 
Go ahead. Go on. Your, your faith has healed you. So in Jericho, they, the last episode before we enter into Holy Week is another point in Mark's gospel where he is very intentional about Jesus opening the eyes of the blind in a very real and physical way in the life of Bartimaeus. But metaphorically speaking, Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. Nobody along the way has really fully understood Jesus' message, his ministry, why are we doing all of these things? There's moments, uh, high, high points where, you know, last week we talked uh, about the, the time where Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter got it right. He said, you are the Messiah. But he didn't quite fully understand exactly what kind of a Messiah Jesus was going to be. So they start this journey in Jericho, and for you geography buffs, uh, Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. Low. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is about 3,000 feet above sea level. So when you read about the journey back and forth between Jericho and Jerusalem in your Bibles, Imagine that it's not an easy walk. It's about, oh, 14 or 15 miles, I think, is about the route that they took. And it doesn't go through very nice countryside either. It's not lush and green. It's, it's dusty. It's rocky. It's, um, it's just desolate. And you're going uphill. Almost 4,000 feet climb between the two places. You get to the top, we referenced the Mount of Olives in our text. The Mount of Olives is, uh, is like at the high point of the climb, and from the Mount of Olives, it, uh, you get your first glimpse of the holy city. So it's kind of one of those, you know when your kids are in the back seat and they say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you don't really ever have a good answer, like... Uh, it's six hours away, but it's not too far now. Um, everybody who's been plodding along, schlepping all that stuff up the mountain, are we there yet? When you get to the Mount of Olives, you have a really good answer for, are we there yet? As you can say, almost, because there's where we're going, to Jerusalem. It's still a couple miles between the Mount of Olives and, and uh, Bethany, where they kind of launch in Bethany, and then Bethpage is not really referenced anywhere else in Scripture. And so it's uh, said to be somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. We're, we're less than two miles out now. And once you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, the vegetation changes, becomes green and more lush. And so you just have that euphoric feeling like, oh, we're almost there yet, and the vegetation has changed. And so the disciples in, are with Jesus, and, and they get to the top of this, of this mountain, and uh, 
And then Jesus just does a few things that are sort of peculiar. There's huge irony in the text that we just read. The story is put together uh, in a way that the whole scene of this parade-like atmosphere, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the whole scene is set up to look like a military parade. Kings and conquering heroes that were returning to their capital city would uh, oftentimes be welcomed in by the masses. The people would see the king coming and and um, the king would, would ride into town and the people would come on out and they would be cheering and they would be, you know, throwing their cloaks down in a symbol of honor and, and they, would, they would sometimes cut branches down and, and symbols of honor and put them down in front of the king and, and it would just this, be this massive military parade of uh, people would be excited and it's just this show of of dominance and force. And Jesus sets up this parade in a very eerily similar way. But if we look really closely, Jesus shows us what a victory parade for him looks like. If we look at, at all of the pieces of, of his parade, we get a, a true picture of the kind of king that Jesus is. He chooses to ride, uh, we translate the word in Mark as colt. Um, other gospel writers will use the word donkey, or is translated uh, donkey. The, the Greek word is polos or polon. And it refers to the same thing. It refers to the young, so like a baby, a baby donkey or a baby horse, a colt. I'll probably refer to it more as a donkey because that's, I just prefer that. But they're referring to the same kind of untamed, unbroken, young animal. And Jesus comes riding on this young donkey, which is a symbol of peace. He doesn't come in all militaried up on a, on a war horse with all of his armor. He comes to Jerusalem not to conquer. He comes to Jerusalem to bring peace. He's not there to fight back. He's there to let happen what's going to happen. He's a humble king who identifies with the poor and the weak and the marginalized, these people from the other places all around the country that maybe sometimes feel like they're not so important. These are the people who are in his victory parade. You could say this military parade was, was more like a peace march. You could put it in the category of protest march. Jesus is clearly against what's going on in the religious system in the country. 
for Jesus and for the reader, for us, those of us who, who know the story, for, for Jesus, it was a death march. He, he knew what was going to happen. And as he enters into Jerusalem and he does so in this kind of a fashion, he's making a statement, now, now is the time. We read John's gospel early on. There's that story where Jesus and at least his mom and a bunch of others are they're at a wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee. Mary notices that there's a problem, that they're, they're running out of wine. That's a huge problem. And Jesus, do something about it. And he said, it's not my time. It's not my time. Now we get to the top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus says, it's time. He does things that he hasn't done before. If you think about it, he has walked everywhere he has gone. Everywhere he's traveled, they've been on foot, walking. So why now, the last two miles, do you mount up on a donkey to ride in? Well, you do so because he's making the statement, I'm the king and I'm coming into my city. His whole ministry. We read it over and over and over again. Jesus would heal somebody, and what would he tell them? Hey, go, don't, don't tell anybody about it. Shh. So it's kind of this, the, the word got out, people talk, I know how it is, but Jesus was not encouraging them to go tell the masses. He was trying to keep it more under wraps. And, you know, I'm going to shush you because I don't want you to, I don't want the word to get out too fast because it, it might lead to my time before it's time. Now it's time. So he mounts that donkey and they start riding in and the people begin to shout the Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Hosanna, save us, Lord, King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And did you notice Jesus didn't say, shh, don't tell anybody about it. He welcomed it. He participated in it. He, he's making a, a very dangerous political statement right now. What he is doing is treasonous to the empire. Because if Jesus comes into Jerusalem proclaiming that he is king, well, that means something to all of the Romans. It means that if Jesus is king, that means Caesar is not. And that's treason. And that's grounds for capital punishment. I like to think my, my professor, Roger Hahn, from seminary, he, he says, and I really like this, he says, the triumphal entry is a resounding statement by God that Jesus is no loser, but that indeed he is king. The system had written him off as loser, as nobody, as heretic. And he rides into Jerusalem as a king. Oh, this parade is 
full of irony. But the crowds, they have no clue. They don't understand it yet. They are... How do I put it this nicely? They're infatuated with the rock star Jesus. They want to jump on the bandwagon of the up-and-coming superstar. The one who can do lots of really cool things for them. They had been waiting a long time for the change you could believe in, but it didn't work out so well. Now they're waiting for somebody to make Israel great again, and they think that Jesus just might be the guy. And they have heard about all of the... Now that was funnier than you gave me credit for. I just, I'm taking a note. <clears throat> they, have been, they want Jesus to do something for them. They aren't in it. They aren't in it to allow Jesus to be who Jesus is. What he came to be. Messiah, Savior, King, Lord. They're in it for what Jesus will do for them. What Jesus uh, would accomplish for them. I don't think it's changed much in 2,000 years of, of history. There's a whole bunch of us running around under the name of Christianity and we're infatuated with Jesus not for who he is as Lord of our life, but we're in it because we want him to do really nice things for us. We want him to bless our life. We really like the passages, you know, where he, you know, he talks about comfort and, you know, um, I'll take your burden, my burden is light, all of those passages. We love those. But when he puts any kind of obligation or demand on our life, when he says, you know, you got to clean up a little bit in your life. There's these sins that, that you just are let, letting run rampant and you're, you're giving yourself a pass and, and I'm asking you to clean it up and we don't, hmm. That's the edgy Jesus that we've talked about, the one who, who demands some things of us. Well, even the disciples don't get it. The crowds, you know, they're, they're just waiting for the next show. Hey, maybe this time he'll bring some sort of blessing into my life. The disciples don't get it either. And they've been traveling with him now for three years. Uh, they're focused on the glory, the dominance, the victory that they expect. Hey, we're, in, we're the inner circle. So when Jesus sets up shop in Jerusalem, guess what? We get the office of our choosing. We get all of these benefits. They're in it for the perks. Jesus is their ticket to success. Last week, Mark chapter 8, we talked a little bit about it. The first, there's three times that Jesus predicts his passion, that pre predicts his suffering, that, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, boys, and when we get there, I'm going to be rejected by the 
religious people, by, you know, the government, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, but I will be raised again. That's a passion prediction. Jesus does it three times in the Gospel of Mark. The first time, Peter pulls Jesus aside and gives him what for? No, Jesus, this will never happen to you. You're not thinking about this rightly, Jesus. This is not what being a Messiah is all about. Let me give you a lesson in what Messiah is all about. You're going to go in, we're going to march in, we're going to take charge, clean up this place. So all of this talk about suffering and death and dying, Messiahs don't die. Failed Messiahs die. Successful ones don't. We want you to be a successful Messiah, Jesus. So don't, don't talk about this stuff. Spin forward to Mark chapter 9. We skipped over nine, the, one, the 1 and 9 and 10 to land where we are today. In chapter 9, oh, verse 30-ish, Jesus gathers the crew again and tells them for the second time, hey, just so you know, we're going to Jerusalem it's not going to end well there. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised to new life. Well, in Mark chapter 9, the, the second account, the, the, Mark says that the disciples didn't understand, and they were too afraid to ask any questions about it. Like, you know, <laughs> we got a 10-foot pole here, and we're going to stay at, at that distance. We're not, touching, we're not touching that suffering and death thing, no way. That's scary stuff, right? You know why it's scary for them? Jesus marches into Jerusalem claiming to be king, this Messiah person. Well, there had been other people who came into Jerusalem claiming to be Messiah before. You don't hear about too many of them because they were all executed. And when the Romans take care of somebody who says they're Messiah, they take care of the whole group. So, hey, yeah, we're the, like the closest 12, and you're talking about suffering and death. Well, that's treason, and we know what the Romans do, which if you're going to die, that means that we're likely to die. So, you know, um, we're kind of afraid maybe they're looking for the escape. Well, the funny thing about the story in Mark chapter 9 is that like a verse later, like Two verses later, Jesus and the disciples are walking somewhere, and they're kind of walking, uh, and most of the paths there were probably single-file paths, and, and as they're going, the disciples are having an argument about who's the greatest. One verse, we don't want anything to do with Jesus because he's talking about suffering and death, and we don't understand that, and we're afraid of that because we don't want to die. Next verse, hey, I'm the best disciple there is. Yeah, John, no, he might be young and handsome and, and he might be Jesus' favorite, but I'm number one. That's what they're arguing about. They get to the end and Jesus calls them on it. Hey, on the way up here, what were you guys talking about? And they go silent and they say, yeah, I guess we were talking about who's the greatest. Well, then you get over to Mark chapter 10, third time. Third passion prediction. So Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. A few things are going to happen. I'm going to be rejected. 
I'm going to suffer, the suffering is going to lead to death, and I'm going to be raised again. No, that's not the way the story is supposed to go. See, what happens is their hearing stopped at death. Jesus says death, the light goes red, mind scrambles, ah, and they stop listening. You ever do that? Yeah. We hear what we want to hear, but then we miss something. They missed the raised to new life part. <laughs> After this episode, James and John, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, approach Jesus. Hey, Jesus. We, can we ask you a question? Sure, what, what do you want to ask? Hey, when you come into your kingdom, will you grant us the places of honor on your right and on your left? They're, they're pulling Jesus. Another gospel writer says they actually bring their mom and have their mom ask the question. Hey, will you give my boys the places of honor at your right and left when you come into your kingdom? In Mark, <laughs> Jesus says, hey, I don't think you really know what you're asking for. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. Exactly. Well, I really don't think you understand what that might mean. Oh, no, we get it. We get it. Right and left. You know? Corner offices here. Best perks. The cool uniforms, you know, that go along with being in charge. That's what they're looking for. They didn't realize that the positions of being on his right and left as he entered into his kingdom would mean that they were tacked to a cross on his right and on his left. Jesus knew that. He understood what they were asking for, but they didn't quite get it. This is what the disciples are thinking about. The crowds missed out on all of the irony in the parade. The disciples even missed out on what Jesus was trying to tell them. And you know what happens? When we, when we focus on privilege and what we get out of it, Jesus is going to say, okay, I'll show you what privilege looks like in my definition. And Mark lays it out perfectly for us in the story we read. Everybody is poised for this huge kingdom moment. The time is not today is the day. We're starting this parade and everybody's cheering and the, throwing the cloaks in the ground and, and the branches and we're marching into Jerusalem. This is going to be it. And Jesus pauses. He says, hey, you two, I want you to go up to the village ahead and I want you to fetch me a donkey. What? We got to slow this down? You, are you serious? Up there? Mark spends half, half of the story that we read. You know, Mark has been a really fast-paced. Mark is, is a fast-paced gospel, immediately is his favorite word. And we get to chapter 11, verse 1, and they start this, and then the story kind of goes 
in the slow motion. And we read 50% or a little bit more of the, verse, of the words of the verses that we read were about two disciples that Jesus assigned to go out and get him a ride. He talked about where to go to find it, gave him instructions on what to look for, what to do, what to say. You know, I don't, nobody knows what these disciples were thinking, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that they had imagined for themselves uh, jobs or roles that were more prestigious in nature on this particular day. If we're off fetching a donkey, that means that we're not, we don't have time with you, the most important person. How are we supposed to, you know, wiggle our way into the positions of the right and the left if we're, you know, out trying to chase down a donkey? Come on, Jesus. That's not what you, that's not what we signed up for. And Mark doesn't name who these disciples are. <laughs> Maybe it was James and John. <laughs> Maybe Jesus was saying, okay, boys, let me, uh, let me give you a little object lesson here. It's time to simmer down a little bit about this whole glory thing. I want you to go on ahead to this village. I don't think it really matters which disciples it is. And I, in fact, the longer that I've thought about it this week, I think Mark is intentional. All the gospel writers are intentional about not telling us which two disciples that Jesus chose. Because I think that it could be any two disciples, which includes you and me in that equation. Jesus just might ask us to go fetch a donkey for him once in a while. And if we thought that, oh, it was just James and John, then we would think, oh, Jesus was making a point for those boys. Instead, it's unnamed, so that includes us in that whole equation, like, hey, you know what? Jesus might just send us on, on an errand like this. He says, go ahead, you'll find the donkey tied up, untie it, and bring it back to me. Wouldn't Okay, Jesus, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Won't it look like we're stealing that donkey? Won't we look like a bunch of horse thieves? I mean, why don't we just get Uber and they'll just come and pick us all up? Why do we need to go ahead and leave the party to... Oh. Can you picture these two disciples going and trying to wrestle this untamed animal? I mean, have you ever thrown a rope around an untamed animal's neck and tried to get it to move anywhere? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. Yeah, a few of us. <laughs> it doesn't always go so well, does it? I, you know, one of the disciples is just yanking like this, and come on! And the other one is kind of just pushing behind, you know? And maybe one of them is assigned to the shovel detail, you know? The parade that I told you about in Spokane, there are a lot of horses in this parade. And behind every entry that had a horse in it, there was a clown or somebody dressed up uh, pushing a wheelbarrow and carrying a shovel. You know what? Sometimes in the kingdom of God, you're the one with the wheelbarrow and the shovel. Because that's the kind of jobs that Jesus assigns to us once in a while. I want you to be on donkey detail. 
I want you to go ahead into the village, and there's going to be a donkey that's tied up there. I want you to untie the donkey, and I want you to bring it back to me. Jesus, no, any other job but this. This was uh, a very unromantic task. This is not what the story is supposed to go like in these guys' minds. It's not glorious. This is a boring, dirty job Jesus is sending him off to do. You ever, do you wonder if maybe, <laughs> there are three famous words, we've all heard them. If you have kids, you've heard these words. It's not fair. Why do those ten guys get to hang around you and enjoy your company and your presence and you're sending us off to do that? It's not fair. Have you heard that before? Have you said it before? <laughs> See, kids are famous for it. They are quick. They are quick to understand the equity scale. And if the equity scale is out of balance, you get called on it. It's not fair. Why does she get that and not me? Why does he get to go there and I have to stay here? These disciples said, it's not fair. You know, adults, we do the same thing. We never grow out of that. I mean, I think as we become more and more like Jesus, we can grow away from that. But adults, we're just more sophisticated in how we say it's not fair. A lot of times it's just internalized. And we have much more subtle, passive-aggressive ways of saying it's not fair. I think these guys said it's not fair. And, you know, I'm not immune to this. I remember, there's a, not here, other ministry position I was in. We had some, let's just say, denominational dignitaries coming to visit, coming to speak at our church. And, the day that they were there, you know, I was looking forward to, to, meeting, to meeting these people and spending time, you know, hearing a little bit of their stories. But I wasn't at the, you know, the top of the totem pole of the organizational chart. Although I thought I should have been. And I thought that it would be really nice to be included in the dinner and the discussion and the time with these people. And the tasks that I found myself working on that day were, you know, our janitor didn't show up. And I was scrubbing toilets. And I was taking out the trash. And all the while, I'm thinking, it's not fair. I should be in that place in that dinner, I should be included in that. I wish it was only one time that that ever happened. I remember another time we were uh, we were having the, this class in our church, and I wasn't the senior pastor, so I don't know where I got all of these grandiose ideas. But I was assigned to, you know babysit the copy machine. It's like a 50-page booklet that I had to work on formatting and designing and printing, 
putting in those little spiral binders that never go into the right hole and you, you know, it's just a pain. Late at night, the class is the next day. I didn't get some of the content until, I mean, like the last minute deadline. And I'm thinking, this is going to take hours to do all this formatting. This is a class I should be teaching. I shouldn't be the one babysitting the copier and making all these. It's not fair. Do you ever feel like that? You look around and you think, man, I should, I should be in these positions, but I feel like I'm relegated to just go fetching a donkey. I imagine these disciples felt like they deserved way better than what they were assigned. That's a hard lesson for us to learn. When we get to that point where we feel like, what I'm assigned right now, I deserve way better than this. What Jesus is asking me to do right now, man, I, I think I should be on the right and the left in this parade, in this kingdom. Jesus has a different idea about royal privilege and what it looks like. I think lots of times that we get caught up thinking like the disciples and we confuse following with Jesus with our visions of grandeur and success out in the world and we want first place and the rewards and the ego strokes and the positions of importance. And it's right at this moment, it's right, right at this moment in this story that Mark explains what preparing the way for Jesus looks like. Remember back, right at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, preparing the way, I mean, that sounds like it could be, hmm, I like that. You know, go tell people and announce and you know, move people around. Hey, Jesus is coming. Preparing the way, the way that Mark talks about it, the way that Jesus lines it up here, is uh, we find these disciples that are, and they're performing these humble and ordinary tasks. And if you look at the, throughout the gospel, they're always doing humble and ordinary tasks. They're, getting, they're going to get the boat. They're getting the boat ready when Jesus wants to go fishing. They're taking Jesus fishing. Um, you know, when, when they are out in the boat, they're the ones that are rowing the boat, right? When, they, when they're in this huge crowd a couple times, and Jesus says, hey, let's provide a meal for all of these people. And they say, we're... There's no way we can buy food for all these people. Jesus says, well, go take an inventory. Find out what, what food is already here. So they're out, you know, okay, we got one loaf, two loaves, you know, and they're counting the food rations that are there. Ordinary, mundane, routine kind of stuff. They're the ones who take care of all the accounting. They have to do the spreadsheets and carry the common purse, and Jesus, we don't have enough money for that. We gotta, we're watching the budget really tightly here. And if you would make your sermons nicer, we'd probably get some more money. So come on. Jesus, in just a couple chapters, sends some of the disciples on ahead. Hey, we need to go prepare the room, prepare the meal for the celebration of the Passover. And he sends some disciples on ahead to do the cooking. 
and the preparation and the table setting. And now we find a couple of them assigned to go chase down a donkey that he would ride on his way into Jerusalem making the statement that I am coming as the peaceful king. Whatever they're expecting, they find themselves in this ministry of handling the dirty details like this. Jesus calls us to a life of fetching donkeys, taking care of stuff like this. I know we'd much prefer being the integral part of a movement, and we get upset when we just find ourselves relegated to maintenance tasks. But the thing we need to remember that all of these little details, all of these things, everybody who showed up and pulled weeds and pushed bark around and, and sprayed the lot and got the place beautiful out there, wondering why didn't a whole lot more people show up? Why, why am I elbow deep in a diaper? Why have I set up these chairs for the thousandth time? You know, when we get to those points, we need to remember why we do it. Because Jesus assigns us these things. He needs people to do these sorts of things in his kingdom. And collectively, all of these things get caught up into the grand sweep, the grand arc of Jesus' redemptive work in the world. In your part, whatever it is in the moment, whether it's fetching a donkey or whether it's preaching a sermon, or teaching a Sunday school class, or rocking a baby, or serving in mops, or whatever it is, all of those little things get caught up into the grand redemptive work of Jesus in the world. Amen? Amen. Sometimes it feels like fetching a donkey, but that's precisely what Jesus wants us to do. I need people to do this. Well, there's one other word that I wanted to point out to you as we close. <laughs> Jesus sends them ahead. Hey, you're going to go into the village and you're going to find a donkey and it's going to be tied up and I want you to untie it and bring it to me. If somebody were to ask you what you're doing, let me take a survey. If, if it was your donkey and you caught somebody untying the donkey, would you ask a question? I probably do more than ask a question. Like, <laughs> you want a colt? I'll show you my Colt 45. <clears throat> if anybody asks what you're doing, here's what I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them that the Lord needs it. I'm not thinking that's a real solid answer if I'm the two that are assigned. Really? That's all you got? Well, if you pay attention to the Greek, the word that Mark uses for the word Lord is the Greek word kyrios, which in a religious uh, vocabulary, it was the word that was assigned, it's the word that's translated uh, as the title of God. Uh, it's a word that we use in reference to God's Messiah, the kyrios. But there's a secular meaning to that word as well. Uh, the other meaning for that word is property owner. Property owner. Hey, I want you to go untie the colt, the donkey, and I want you to bring it back to me. 
And if anybody asks why you're doing this, tell them that the property owner needs it. Think about that. Jesus is making a claim as Lord, as King, as property owner over everything that we have. Jesus comes to you and he says, I want to be the curios of your life. I want you to recognize me as Lord. I want you to recognize me as property owner. That everything that you have, everything that you are, all of your time, all of your skills and talents and resources fall under my rightful ownership. And when you choose to follow me, then you choose to, to place yourself under my authority, and that's what it looks like. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> At the very end, Jesus walks into the temple. The way that Mark lines it out, If you ever watched a movie and somebody just goes into a, you know, there's, there's activity all around and the, and the camera focuses in on one person, the music changes a little bit and, and everything else just kind of fades into the background, maybe it's blurred out a little bit, like they're entering into a dream or, or, or just meant to follow one particular person. Mark's gospel is written where everything else fades away at the end of this parade. And it's like Jesus enters into Jerusalem on his own and he walks into the temple. Verse 11. And he looks around. Remember that part? And Mark says that it was, because it was late, he left. Jesus came in, he looked around, and he left. What do you think he was looking for? He had just come into town riding in as king, as Messiah. The symbolism was unmistakable. The people were celebrating him as that. And Mark gets rid of all of the, the other the noise. And he comes into Jerusalem, and nobody is there to welcome him. Nobody. The religious system that you would think would know the signs and the symbols and be expecting and ready to welcome God's Messiah into Jerusalem, that yes, we welcome you, Lord Jesus. No. Silent. Jesus is looking, I think he was there to in, for final inspection. And he looked around and he found the system lacking. And Mark says, because it was late. Now, it very well could mean that it was late in the day and that the activity had subsided and there was nothing more to see here for today until Jesus turned around and looked. Mark's pretty good at symbolism. I think Jesus looked around for final inspection and it broke his heart because it was too late. They had totally missed. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. 
And on this Holy Week, I wonder, when Jesus walks in to your heart, when he walks into our church, and he looks around, what does he see? What does he see? Does he see a heart in a church that's poised and ready to go fetch donkeys, to, to do whatever it is that he needs us to do? Does he see a person and a people who are ready and willing to put ourselves under his lordship and say, you know what, you are lord, you are king, you are the rightful property owner. Whatever it is, at whatever moment you need from us, it's yours anyway. Or would he find us lacking? That's the question that we wrestle with as we enter into Holy Week. Would you stand for prayer?